Hello, I'm Seb Coe and I'm chairman of CSM and over the next few weeks I've enticed a few friends from the world of sport to share their extraordinary tales from their careers with me and of course with you. They all come from a bandwidth of background in the sporting ecosystem. They're competitors, coaches, performance directors, those who have brought brands to partner with sport and those that have thought out of the box and created something that has changed the face of their sport, maybe others. COVID-19 has rocked sport to its core and posed a generational threat to stakeholders across the industry. How will it bounce back? Throughout this series, I will be asking them about their own personal odysseys in sport and also how this pandemic has affected them and their organisations and the lessons we can absorb from it as well as ready ourselves for the new normal we are all soon to face. The first of my guests is the founder of one of the world's fastest growing sports. In just nine years, Formula E has gone from an idea scribbled on a restaurant napkin to a truly global sport, attracting major automotive manufacturers, world-class drivers and sponsorship from leading brands. The sixth season of Formula E was billed with justification as the biggest yet for the all-electric racing series, with new manufacturers, Mercedes-Benz and Porsche, competing a full grid of 24 cars, competing in 13 races staged in some of the world's most iconic cities. So today, I'm delighted to be joined by a former politician. We first met in that arena in 1998. He's an entrepreneur to his fingertips, and an electric vehicle pioneer. He's also a good friend. He is Alejandro Agag. Alejandro, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Seb. And uh, that is actually true. 1998, when we were both in politics. I'm not the only ex-politician here. Um, and uh, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me. When did you uh, actually leave politics? I left politics in 2002. Early 2002, yeah, so I stayed for a little bit more. When I met you, I think I was about to get elected in the European Parliament. Then I went to, to serve as an MEP, and then I stopped a few years later. Yeah, I was, lead, I was um, the private secretary to the leader of the opposition. Exactly. William Hague at the time. William Hague, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's how we met. So let, let's, let's park politics for a moment, which is probably a very, very good thing to do. I mentioned in my introduction, Alejandro, that the genesis of Formula E was actually scribbled on the back of a napkin. Uh, is that true? And if it is, do you have the napkin framed somewhere in your office? <laughs> well, actually, that is true. That is true. Um, and I will tell you later where the napkin is. But um, the story goes that Jean Todd was president, had just recently been elected president of the, of the FIA, of the Federation of uh, Motorsport. And uh, he uh, said, listen, I want to, uh, I would like to meet Antonio Tajani. Antonio Tajani was at the time commissioner of transport, uh, of energy and transport in the European Commission. And he had the whole motor industry in his portfolio. And Antonio and I had been colleagues sitting next to each other in the European Parliament. So I, I, I suggested John that I could organize a dinner in Paris for the three of us, just a friend's dinner to just talk about the motor industry and the trends and where this is going and so on. So we did that and Antonio came to Paris and we went to this little restaurant uh, called Stressa in Paris behind the, the Plaza Atenees, what is John Todd's favorite, one of my favorites too. It's a very small restaurant, Italian restaurant. And then we are in this table around in, in a little corner behind where the coats are. 
And uh, we start talking, and Antonio Tajani is going on about electric cars and the future of the industry and that the industry has to be more clean and that the future is, is going to be electric. And Jean says, well, actually, FIA should create something electric, a championship or something. And I said, I remember, I said, yeah, I would, I would really like to be the promoter of that because I think that is the future. And at the time, I was making some notes in this piece of paper. And, uh, and actually, that's the famous napkin. It wasn't a napkin, actually. It was like a crumble piece of paper. And, uh, and <laughs> not, that, not even as grand as a napkin. Not even as grand as a napkin. Well, because also the napkins in that place are, from, are made of, of fabric. So okay. uh, yeah, it would have been difficult to write on them. But I had this kind of small paper on my pocket, that, my jacket that I started writing on. That piece of paper, the famous napkin, uh, it's now framed on top of that table. So if you have dinner in that restaurant in Paris, the owners of the restaurants have the napkin, which is now signed by Jean Todd, by Antonio, by myself, saying Formula E was born on this table. I think that restaurant is a, uh, a very popular haunt of one Richard Meal, who I know you know extremely oh, yes. well. So the next <laughs> time I have supper with him in there, I'm gonna dig out uh, that uh, napkin or that yes. crumpled piece of paper. Uh, and take a photograph of it. Um, I'm, I'm interested. Clearly, this was, was this the first time that you had thought or been provoked into thinking about electric? Or was, this something, was there something in your background, maybe from politics, that had made you realize that actually this may be something that was uh, just a, a, a natural follow-on from what we had rather taken as, 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 as petrol sport? Yeah, it was not the first time it came to my mind, no. Uh, that is true. I already had been thinking about it. I mean, in my time in politics, uh, electric cars were not on the table at all, but the environment was starting to be an important issue. And of course, there were green parties around Europe that were more worried about nuclear energy or things like that. But the, the climate change was still not a, a common term used by everyone. No? But um, I was one of the youngest, I was the youngest, uh, I think at the time, member of European Parliament, at least from my country. And that was definitely one of my priorities. And, and uh, I, I was making questions to the European Commission about it. I was, I was active on the environmental side. But then really when I thought about it was uh, before Formula E, many years before, I was uh, for many years involved in, let's call it normal motorsport or combustion motorsport. Yeah. And one of the things I was doing was to uh, bring sponsors into Formula One. So I remember we were negotiating with a sponsor. This must have been around 2006 or 2007 to take a big uh, sponsorship uh, of one of the races in Formula One. And um, we were almost there. And suddenly the CEO of the company calls me and says, listen, we're not going to do it. I say, why not? I was disappointed. And he said, listen, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to do better than that. I'm going to sell you the trail of emails of all my team under comments. And then you're going to understand. So he did send me that trail of emails. And in every email, there was an argument against associating with combustion, against associating with pollution, against associating with anything that harms the environment. Bottom line, against associating with Formula One. So in that moment, I thought, we have a problem. We, because it was my, my environment, it was my job. Uh, and, and I thought, if we could find some kind of green Formula One, and I remember I, I asked around about electric cars and I remember I conversation with Bruno Michel, the CEO of GP2, and he said, listen, there is one prototype somewhere, but the problem is it only goes for like 10 minutes. And I thought, oh, that's not enough. And, but, 
but that was the first time it came to my mind. So since then, it was kind of in the back of my head, like a worry about the, you know, the, the unsuitability of the of the of the whole model for the future, because I thought or I knew that environment was only going to get a bigger issue. But but I I well remember the huge skepticism uh, oh, yeah. expressed by everybody at the time. Well, not everybody, but most Almost. notably, well, most notably Bernie Eccleston, who actually said yes. he didn't think you'd make it to to the first race. Uh, I, I I guess the competitor in me tells me that you fed off that cynicism, uh, and probably deter were even more determined to get it across the line. Well, let me say it was a big motivation. Yes, it was, <laughs> it was a big motivation. Yes, because a lot of my friends, basically all my friends that were in motorsport, uh, didn't think I was going to, well, they, not even going to make it. They, they thought I was going to crash uh, spectacularly. Um, I remember Bernie telling me, you will never get to your first race. Um, I remember Flavio Briatore, who was, and he's a very close friend, such a, same as Bernie, uh, making jokes with me, like if it was electric, like electric discharges, every time he came back to, close to me, he would make like a noise of electricity, like, you know, like uh, things like that. So everybody was really taking it up a bit as a joke. And uh, that was the main challenge, really, is to, to make people believe that this thing was going to survive, because there was such a consensus that this thing was going was gonna, to was gonna collapse that very few people wanted to associate with it because they, they thought, OK, why am I going to sponsor or why am I going to have a team in a, in a, in a project that in six months or one year will, will crash? So that was our, our big challenge in the beginning. But like you said, it was also a big, big motivation and, we, and, and, and kept us going. And we had the same way that we had many, many cynicals, we also had suddenly out of the out of the woods came incredible supporters so we had some really great sponsors who came right at the start like uh, dhl or uh, tag hewer or michelin or uh, uh, julius bear the bank or others you know suddenly we had these people who said even if you crash we want to be involved in this because we think it's worth it alejandro let me just dwell if i may for a few moments on the cynicism element in all this because yes you won them over and yes, you gained converts along the way, but I'm guessing the human condition is often to have second thoughts because the weight of opinion is so often expressed against an idea. Uh, did you ever have any second thoughts, even when good friends of yours whose judgment you trusted uh, were saying that you wouldn't make it? Because you know, for those listening to this podcast who uh, are, are running businesses or trying to do things that, you know, are bucking the, the status quo. That's, that's always a huge challenge. You know, of course, um, I never had second thoughts on, on the will of going forward and of continuing. So I never had a thought of giving up. Of course, I had really bad days where I thought, oh my God, we're, we're not going to make it. And, uh, my drive came from the from almost kind of a moral obligation to not let down the people that had believed in the project you know so i had to make it because so many people had invested money had you know creating a team to raise in the championship so many sponsors had already embarked and and paid money so many people believed in the project that i i, I and i was kind of the the screw in the center of it all if i cracked the whole thing would have gone you know, so I 
basically had to make it for the others, not for myself, but for everyone else that really had believed. So that was kind of a big feeling of responsibility. It became, at some point, we, I remember, I mean, a lot of, I would wake up every morning at 3 a.m. No need for alarm clock. Every morning I would open my eyes at 3 a.m. Sharp, at 3 not at 2.59, not at 3.01, at 3. I don't know how. And I would just see invoices in my, I open the eyes and I see invoices. And I, and I would like think of all these invoices and I think, I'm going to pay that one. I'm going to tell that one to wait. To that one, I'm not going to return the call. To that one, I'm going to tell him to talk to my sister. I mean, I don't know. It was kind of a whole, because at one point we owed 25 million to our suppliers and we had $100,000 in the bank. So it was pretty tough. This is not classic uh, Harvard Business School, Alejandro, but I, I'm very pleased. <laughs> not really, no. Very pleased to hear the practical uh, advice you're giving here. But look, to, to the doubters, of course, uh, you then had to deal with the initial failure uh, around some of the ba battery technology. And I guess that was also another challenge just to keep not, not the doubters on board, but the teams that had actually signed up to this, uh, all moving in the right direction. Well, yeah. I mean, and there is a little bit of an untold story because at the time I didn't tell anyone really, but um, we, we had a battery supply. So the most difficult thing in any electric car, and now of course the technology has advanced a lot, but in 2011, 2012, it was still very early days, is the battery, the battery technology. But on the other hand, without a battery, you have no electric car. So the battery was the heart of the whole project. <clears throat> so we managed to get in an agreement with a big car manufacturer to make us the batteries. We gave them the specs, we start the project, and then in the meantime, we start signing up teams, we start signing up sponsors, we start signing up cities, we start going forward with everything because we knew we had a battery. And about um, one year, under one year before the first race, we get a call from that manufacturer saying, I'm so sorry, but we are abandoning the battery project because we cannot make it work. So the whole thing, the whole cast, the whole house of cards, the central card is taken away. And the whole thing is completely shaky. So we had to react super quick. And we did that in two ways. First, we found another battery supplier. Uh, and uh, that was Williams. And Williams how, long did it take you, how long did it take you to find that? like 48 hours. So we, we, we were, because we had been talking to them already, they were kind of, already we were there. Yeah, but because we hadn't pushed the button in time, William said, sorry, we cannot produce the batteries on time. Second thing we did was then I, I, I kind of found a way to present it on the right way. We were going to start in May, uh, but then I said, I changed my mind. I'm going to start the championship in September. So, so I don't clash too much with Formula One. That was one of the reasons. The other reason was I gained the three or four months that Williams needed to supply the batteries. So we, it was a really close call, but, uh, but we made it. And um, yeah, and at the end, yeah, I actually have to say that battery, even that we got a very good battery, could not finish the whole race. With, 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 with that battery, we could only do half of the race. So then we had to decide to do the races with two cars. So the driver would start the race with one car, jump out in the pit stop to the second car and then continue. But, you know, it, it worked. Uh, a, a little bit of orthodox, 
Harvard Business School now, yeah. if you don't mind me sure. uh, probing. Look, I've, I've long since believed that the difference between the good and the great in sport, actually probably other walks of life for that matter, is how you bounce back uh, and regroup after setbacks. Um, I'm really interested in how you keep your teams uh, driving forward uh, when you do have those setbacks because, you know, there is always a natural instinct in some parts of the team to, to look for the life belts when the, when the boat hits, hits choppy water. What, what, is it, what advice would you give to somebody that is experiencing exactly those challenges Less so in the technical solutions, but more so in how you keep your teams focused uh, and with their eye on the main prize. Well, um, it's it's. I think everyone has a different way of managing a team. Uh, it's not like one single probably mechanism. Some people, uh, uh, you know, do it differently than others. The, the way we do it in Formula E is really. Um, in two, there there are two things that we apply in Formula E, or I apply maybe if. if because I guess I'm the leader of the team, but uh, first I delegate a lot, like exaggerated level of delegation. So each one has a very, very big space of responsibility. So they know what's going on. Uh, so you need people to know what's going on to be committed to the project and to still keep the, the, the vision on the, on the final price. Because if, if you keep them in the uncertainty, if you keep the information not flowing, they don't know what's going on, trust goes both ways. You know, and then they start not trusting you, and then they don't know what's going on, and then they start looking for 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 a life saver boat or something, or to 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 uh, to do something. Second is uh, at least what we do here: credit credit gets very distributed. So you know, if someone does something good, credit is his, um, and that I think is important for the team. Uh, because if the boss takes the credit all the time, I mean, I take enough credit already because you know. If a ball stays there bouncing and it's nobody's, it's mine. But 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 you you have to uh, allocate credit where really is deserved, and I think people really appreciate that. So if you delegate enough, and if you if you if you give credit enough to the people when they do something well, I think people stay stay motivated. I have been really lucky because I had a core team of people, super loyal, that has been all the way through this, through the bad times and through the good times and so on, and and and, and the team has grown. But but with the same spirit, so it's it's been it's been very lucky, really. So Alejandro, what I, what I'm really drawing from that is just a simple proposition: be uncompromising about the quality of the people that you employ. Uh, they have to be world class. They have to be best in field. Uh, trust them to get on with the job, and don't micromanage them. Absolutely, absolutely. This is the key. Because if you micromanage them, why why do you have them? First of all, you need to try to get people that are better than you, at least better than you on each speciality because you know I'm not a good lawyer uh, I know some law and I can read a contract but my lawyer should be 10 times better lawyer than than, my, than I am uh, I know finance a little bit but my finance guy needs to be 10 times better my sponsorship guy should be 10 times better I mean maybe I do some things better than others but in general you should you should surround yourself with people that are better than you and you are in the middle and your actually your job is really to get the most of those people but if you micromanage them, you are effectively uh, blocking those people from delivering their best. So finding people that are smarter than you is probably the best risk mitigator. 
Oh yeah, oh for sure, for sure. If you find people that are more stupid than you, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you don't go out and knowingly recruit them in that order. Uh, Alejandro, let me just fast forward, if I may, uh, to 2014. Um, you've successfully navigated uh, the championship to your first race uh, in Beijing. Just how difficult was the first year? I mean, if I tell you the first race in Beijing, that was, I, I still today don't know how that race happened. It was a miracle. I moved to Beijing for a month, almost a month. So I, I, I got a room in a hotel and I just set myself there. And I was going myself at 2 a.m. to the track. And I was there with the operator, with the workers uh, of loading the fences, the walls with, the, with my Chinese partner. The, there was a bridge to go into the paddock that was going over the, over the track. The bridge was shaking every time one, uh, one person crossed it. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing, I don't know how it, how it worked. It, it did work, uh, but it was so difficult. And then there was no real organization. So we were running from one race to the next. So we finished China. Everyone would take a plane and go to Malaysia and, and, and just start trying to solve problems in Malaysia. And then it would finish and we would jump to Punta del Este in Uruguay and start to try to solve the race there and produce it. So it was all living on the day and trying to solve each problem. And, and, and then at the same time, a small team in London trying to put a structure for the year, for, for next year to try to do things better. Uh, I, I've heard a, a variation of that because, of course, my youngest son was oh, working yes. in your hospitality. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> he was. He was the one uh, on the planes and, 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 and running the, the pit lanes. Um, let's focus on the future a little bit because clearly COVID-19 has been a massive, massive setback for yeah. wherever you sit globally. And it doesn't really matter what organization you're in. Very, very few people have come out of this uh, un unscathed by it. Um, and of course, all the economic uh, predictors are telling us that we're going to hit a recession. Uh, some companies have already got into that and the analysts are telling us it, it's going to bite deep. Based on your experience of dealing with tough times and you've just identified enough for, for most people to deal with in a lifetime, what would your advice be to today's business leaders in navigating the water that we've sort of landed ourselves in? Um, well, I, I think the first, uh, I, I mean, you know, without trying to give an advice, but, but the first thing really actually is probably to keep calm. Well, well maybe not advice, just instinct. Yeah, 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 my, my, yeah, yeah. But to keep calm because, you know, we have to keep the head cool. Um, for sure, it's going to be tough. But uh, on the other hand, there is not a structural reason for the recession. It's, it's an unexpected, out of, the, out of the blue hit, huge hit. We didn't see it coming at all. And it has just have a huge effect, has paralyzed effectively the economy of the world for three months, which is huge in terms of, uh, of uh, production, GDP, etc. But um, there is no real uh, structural reason for it. Second is we have to um, see how long it lasts. And effectively, we are seeing good signs in the last days, definitely. 
third, we have to keep uh, being optimistic. So the, it will be tough. There will be industries that will completely transform. Uh, people have to be really open to make big, big changes. We have to use this as an opportunity. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's not. We have to use it as an opportunity to, to reduce cost. In Formula E, we were trying to make the teams understand they should spend less. Now they all understand. So, you know, now we're cutting costs. We're putting things where we wanted them to be, but we couldn't. Now, sometimes we can't put them where we want to be now using this situation. So, uh, of course, it's, 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 it's terrible what's happening, but not everything has to be necessarily bad. You can get some good lessons from this. And it sounds like a cliche and so on, but I really believe it and, I, and we're doing it. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so keep calm, try to, try to look at the positive and try to make the homework or the things you couldn't reform now. So, so the smart organizations are using this period to re-engineer themselves and in a way future-proof themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we, we have uh, uh, in Formula in Extreme E, for example, which is my new venture, uh, people are working as hard as normal. Uh, we, we, are, we have all these projects that we can now do. Uh, let's look at all our contracts. Let's look at uh, all our television agreements. Let's go to a review. Let's have now, uh, let's prepare templates for the things we want to do. Let's, uh, you know, you can do plenty of things when you have two months of calm. You, but, but, you know, you, you can use them for, especially for startups. You, you always set up a startup in a hurry. And there are things that you do like that. If you suddenly, after a year and a half of the startup going, you get two or three months of stop and think and reorganize, it can be quite useful. So use it. Or we could just have stayed home and cried and wait for the storm to pass. But instead, if you really try to use the time, you can do things that are useful and your company can be, of course, we will suffer, but we will be at the same time better prepared for the future. Uh, new ways of working uh, and clearly new ideas. Have any of those ideas already hit the napkin? Well, actually, yes. Uh, actually, a huge idea hit the napkin and uh, we, we made it public already. But I'm going to tell you how the idea came through. So we were going to have 12 teams because of COVID and so on, less traction with sponsors. We adapted the first season and we said, okay, let's have eight teams on the first season. So we were brainstorming Ali Russell and uh, James, I think, and myself and Carlos. The, and we said, okay, if we're only going to have eight teams, why don't we have two drivers per team? Like this, we have more drivers. And then we said, okay, but if we do two drivers per team, why don't we do two laps? Oh, that's cool. We do two laps instead of one lap to the, to the off-road kind of area where we race. Great. Wow. Why don't we, instead of the two drivers, men, have one man and one woman? We do it like Wimbledon, double mixed. Great. So that idea came up completely because of the COVID situation, brainstorming, trying to do things that are more interesting and so on. And that has been a game changer for us. Since we went with this thing out, it's totally pro-gender equality but not in a fake way. It's the format that is like this. No one can say that double mix in Wimbledon is fake. It's a real tennis game, but it's just with one man and one woman. And each one has the same responsibility for winning the team, the, the game. Here, they will have the same responsibility for winning the race. So yeah, you can get very good ideas when you are in uh, lockdown. Look, uh, we're all trying to keep our sports front and center at the moment. There's a massive void, not just for our competitors or uh, our teams trying to create these huge events and, and certainly the fans are uh, really uh, on a bit of a famine at the moment. 
Uh, we had our garden clash in athletics, which was really getting three pole vaulters, male and female, to compete literally from their own back gardens because they have really? kind of, we had, you know, we had very good numbers watching that. There was a real appetite. Uh, I did watch uh, on television the other day. Uh, well, I, I guess I was one of four million people watching yeah. your virtual race. Um, I guess there are things that you are already, as we are, learning from. Uh, these virtual and, and created opportunities that might just find their way into the more orthodox competitions. Yes, this this has been also this this crisis has because it has kept everyone at home, um, opened the door to to many different ways of doing things through uh, through technology, and one of them is this virtual race that we've done. But the interesting thing of that race and why we think that race has had more success than other initiatives in the same field is that because you have the same guys running in the track running in the digital race people want to see the real drivers and then if you get those guys people follow if you get a mix of one guy but not all of them like for example you know uh other chapters formula one for example lewis hamilton and these guys they're not in the race some of them are some of them are not that that detracts a lot of value from the digital race. You need to have all your real drivers on the digital alternative, and then you get four million watching, which is you know which is a really remarkable result. So definitely there there, there are new ways to do things, but I, I have to confess I can't wait to get back to the to the real thing. Uh, in a in a new documentary recently uh, released documentary on Formula E, I think you describe yourself as. A racing guy who cares uh, about the environment. I guess uh, you've mentioned it. Extreme E uh, was a natural successor, given that that's where your head is. Yes, yes, de definitely was a natural successor. And yeah, that's what I am. Like I, like I said, I'm not an environmentalist from the start. I, I um, first I was a politician, then I was into racing, and I became really a yeah a racing guy. Uh, and uh, I had this worry about the environment like any kind of responsible human being should have because we live in this planet and we are uh, damaging it no but uh, extreme is kind of the the normal sequel of formula e formula e has become already a very established championship for single seaters around the world uh, but we wanted to go one step farther and one step farther is extreme e extreme e is an off-road championship also electric that follows the same objective to have electric cars all over the world. So every, every car in the world one day, that's our aim, it's electric. But second, and I think even more importantly, to highlight what's going on in the most damaged corners of the planet. And that is in the Arctic, that is in the Himalayas, that is in the Amazon rainforest, that is in the coastlines of Africa, that is in the deserts. You show all these processes that are going, that, that are happening, that, that are really the, pro, the, the, the effect of, of humans in our uh, planet. And we, you show that through sport. So it's, it's a good way to, 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 to put together sports and environment once again, but even, even on a stronger way. I, I've been trawling through some of your quotes. I've got another one for you here. In an article just recently, you described COVID-19 uh, as a test run for when we need to act on climate change. What do you think are the key lessons that we should be absorbing from this period? Well, for me, it's, there is one very, very uh, important and very simple lesson at the same time. And it's, it's going to sound very obvious, but we were not ready. We were not prepared. 
And if you start looking back, you see many people alerting about a pandemic. Of course, if you look at if you look back, we're not looking back at other alerts. People alert about all sorts of things. But a pandemic was a risk that was there uh, and we were not prepared for it. If we would have been prepared, there would be a lot less death and there would be uh, there would have been a lot less economic chaos and a lot less damage. And, you know, we, we would have been able to be a lot better off. The, le- the big lesson is there, we, there is something coming that we know it's coming, which is climate change. Let's learn the lesson and prepare and let's, let's, let's learn the lesson and do now the homework so we don't get affected again by climate change because COVID is a kid's game compared to the effects that we can get in our societies from climate change. COVID will pass. Climate change will not. When it arrives, it's irreversible. So we need to avoid uh, the temperature by uh, raising more than two degrees by the end of the century, or it will be too late. So, so really that's a big lesson. We are now seeing the effect of unpreparation. We're now seeing the effect of not doing our homework with a, an unexpected uh, event, but there is an expected one. So let's do the homework now. Uh, and do you think that sport really has a, well, is, is, is going to be one of the great drivers for, for these social changes and this recognition, particularly around climate change, I guess also physical inactivity? Absolutely. I think, uh, well, first, I think the solution has to come from everywhere. So sport is part of our lives, but we need to make the change in every, every different part of our life. How we, how we consume, how we eat, uh, what we use, how we travel, how we behave, everything. But sport has a really important role to play. Uh, and I think sport has a role to play because it, it, it affects our habits. So like you were mentioning... Uh, living in a, in a more healthy way, but also sport is followed by people. People is part of their, their, their passion, is part of what they, they watch, is part of what entertains people. So it's a really good way to get a message to people. And if, if people are watching, uh, and I'm just going to give the example of Extreme E, but any sport can play a role. A race in the Arctic and they see the Arctic completely dry and, and they realize that the ice is melting, that's one more element in the brain of the public that is watching that race that then will get them more prepared to buy more responsibly, behave more responsibly, uh, put solar panels in the roof of their home if they can, buy an electric car if they can, etc., etc., etc. So sport can play a real role in changing the minds of people, uh, in bringing people on the, right, on the right direction, and not only people, also companies. You know, and we in Extreme we are very inclusive. We are against that kind of good guy, bad guy kind of narrative. If Shell wants to contribute, they should be welcome. I mean, you know, when Shell, when a company like Shell or like Total it produces 100% of the energy from solar, then we would have gotten somewhere, you know? So those are the companies that really need to bring the change. So we have to be inclusive with everyone, not put them in a corner, but bring them on the right direction with everyone else. Alejandro, you've been very generous with your insights about COVID-19 and some of the learnings. If I put you on the spot, what is the one thing that you have learned during this lockdown period that you think will make your business smarter going forward? Uh, That's a very interesting question. 
I've learned that nothing is the end of the world. Even, you know, if we are in trouble and we are, you know, going through tough time and so on and so forth, nothing is the end of the world. We may be a little better, uh, worse off, a lot worse off some people, but uh, we need to keep pushing always. So that's the lesson. Nothing is the end of the world. Alejandro, nothing is the end of the world, but it does signal the end of this interview. I'm <laughs> okay. extraordinarily grateful for the time that you spared us today. Thank you so Pedro, much. Pedro, always Thank you very much. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 